with that, we're going to bring Chad up. He's going to read Exodus 32. So turn your Bibles to Exodus 32. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament from the front. It's right after Genesis. And uh, Chad is going to read all 35 verses. So let's please stand and give reverence and honor to God's Word. Bozeman, Montana. Not Bozeman, Colorado. Just helping you out a little bit. We all knew what you meant. Exodus 32. I don't think this is on, so I'm going to talk loud. If I scream in your ears, I'm sorry. Uh, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written, The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of, the, out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, at this point in the gathering, there's a reason why we almost every weekend read the full text in which you're going to preach. It is at this point that perfection is being read. Your word is perfect. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Lord, let us just be in awe. Every time we stand to honor your word, it is you speaking through us. These are your words written out. Lord, we are so thankful because they give us guidance and direction for our lives on how to love you, how to love our neighbors as well. So, Lord, give us ears to hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. A couple years ago, I think you guys, if you remember, that these motivational posters started coming out, right? The motivational posters with the big picture of like the lion, and then the one big bold word like leadership, and then that a saying under it that says, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader, right? And they had all kinds of different motivational sayings and words. Well, then a couple years later came, came out uh, the demotivational posters. You guys remember those? Raise your hand if you ever remember those. See those. A couple of you. They're pretty funny, actually. Like trying was one. That was a boy uh, trying. And it had this picture of this skier that just took a massive digger, right? And he's just, he's in the, he's in the snow covered, and his skis are pointing in all different directions. And this is the caption for trying. Sometimes you just shouldn't, right? 
And you're like, yeah, that's pretty funny. My favorite one is of this ship, of like this tanker ship, and like three quarters of it is underwater in the ocean, and only a quarter of it is sticking out. And the, and the word that wants to get across is mistakes. And this is what it says. Uh, mistakes. It could be the purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others, right? And you're like, okay, that's, that's true. That, that's pretty good. Well, uh, if we had a, an Exodus 32 D motion, uh, motivational, it would be mistakes. The word could be mistakes or sin or idolatry. And it'd have a picture of Israel worshiping this golden calf, right? And in the word, the caption underneath it, we would see it would come from the Apostle Paul as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.6 regarding this event that we just read. He says this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And that's what Exodus 32 is about. It's a familiar story. It's one of the most repeated stories in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because he wants to get across the point, the point that we just said that Paul told us. It's an example for us on what not to do. We are to look at Israel in Exodus 32 and say, hey, don't do that. Don't follow their example. And the Apostle Paul, again, wants everyone in here this morning, you and me, to be reminded to be warned by Exodus 32, that we are not to desire evil and bow our knees down to idols, but to use our lives and to follow and serve the Lord. So that's what we're going to dive in today. And first we see in Exodus 32, 1 through 10, the sin against God. We'll probably spend a little bit more time in this point, and then we'll get through the other two points. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And we know that in Exodus chapter 24, that tells us that Moses and Joshua have been up the mountain for about 40 days now. It's been 40 days since Israel has watched Moses and uh, um, uh, Joshua go up into the cloud of the mountain. Now just think about that. 40 days. They've been enslaved for 400 years by this brutal regime of Egypt. They've now just been redeemed through the series of miracles, watching the Lord move them from Egypt out of slavery into freedom. And they can't wait 40 days for the Lord to send Moses and Joshua back down the mountain to guide them and direct them. I don't know about you, but I thought, man, talk about being impatient. I mean, I know I'm impatient, but talk about being impatient. Why is it so hard for Israel to wait on the Lord? And the question is, I immediately ask myself, why is it so hard for me to wait on the Lord? Why is it so hard for you to wait on the Lord? We are an impatient people. Has he ever failed to come through on his promises? Again, we read this through um, Exodus, we've been studying through Exodus, and we're seeing how the God has delivered them and been true to his promises to the nation of Israel in 40 days, and they're off running and wanting to follow and make other gods. It's incredible. And so Israel's example speaks clear to our impatience as well, that we are an impatient people. And our impatience when dealing with the Lord is evidence of a heart issue that we have. Our impatience is an action of an internal heart issue, and that internal heart issue is that we don't trust the Lord. 
It's a lack of trust. It's a lack of faith in the Lord. That's what our impatience is. We have expectations for the Lord, and when He doesn't answer those expectations, our expectations, how we want, when we want, we turn and start to do and create our own path. See, the Lord is never late. He is always on time. We are just early. And so when anyone is impatient, especially when it comes to the Lord, nothing really good follows. I mean, think about when you are impatient in your life. Does anything really good follow after that? No, usually it doesn't. Usually what follows is sin, is sin and chaos, and that's what we see here. Uh, Israel's impatience leads them to take matters into their own hands, and it leads them straight down the path of sin, and more in particular, idolatry. And they immediately break the first two commandments and probably several others with their actions in verses 1 through 6. We know they break the first commandment, who, who they are to worship. The, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, no other gods before my face. And we see in verses 1, 4, 23, let us make gods, plural. Second, how they are to worship. The second commandment, you shall not make any images and then bow down to them. And we see that they do that immediately as well. And what we call this is syncretism. This is, this is the people of Egypt, uh, Israel meshing with their experience the past 400 years with the, the gods of Egypt. They're meshing these two religions together because they want to see something visually. They're visual people like us. They want to see something visually in the spirit. Uh, God is spirit and he is invisible. Now, we touched on idolatry in Exodus 20, so let me just briefly remind us what that is. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. That's a, that's, that's a simple definition of idolatry. Putting something or someone in the place of God. They are counterfeit gods, substitute saviors. Idolatry is anything you seek to get from those things that only Christ can give you, that only God can give you, such as joy, peace, security, happiness. And an idol can be anything. It can be a graven image. It could be a shrine. It could be money. It could be pleasure. It could be even good things like your kids, your grandkids. Idolatry is all around us, and it begins in the heart. Remember, this, this, them creating this image and their desire to have this visual image speaks to a greater issue that goes into their heart their heart. Acts, uh, Stephen says this in Acts 7, recounting this event. He says, in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And what we see here is that it's easier to take the people out of Egypt than it is to take Egypt out of the people. That's the difficulty here. That's what we see is so hard. It's the same with us. And what we see in verses 2 through 6 is the, that Israel gained up on Aaron. Aaron was the man left in charge to lead the nation Israel while Moses and Joshua were up on the mountain. Israel gained up on Aaron and threatened him, hey, build this, this new God. Now, I don't know about you, but think about it. Just put in the, next, the next verse you would, you would think when the mob comes against Aaron is Aaron would say something like, ain't doing it, Right? No way. No way, Jose. There's, there's no way I'm building you guys an, an altar. Didn't, don't you just remember just over a month ago how we were standing at the base of Mount Sinai? We heard the voice of God. We trembled. There was lightning. There was fire. And we said, hey, yeah, we'll follow your covenant. We'll, we'll obey your commands. Don't you remember that? And 40 days later, you want me to, to turn my back on that? No way. I don't know about you. That's what I would expect Aaron to say. 
a good leader to say. And then what about, and we know he doesn't, we know he, he bends the knee, but then where's her? You guys remember her? Her was probably the third guy in command, in charge. Remember when Moses went out the mountain of the battle against the Amalekites? Right, Moses was up there. It was Aaron and her that held up Moses' arms. Where's her at? If Aaron ain't going to stand up, where's her? Her ain't nowhere to be found either. And what we see here is we see, again, bad leadership. That's what we see, bad leadership from Aaron. He bends his knee to the mob, to the cancel culture, calling on, for, calling on him to do something. And again, their impatience, their lack of faith causes them to sin and then pulls Aaron in with them. We see again that Aaron wilted like a paper plate in a campfire before this mob. And before we get too harsh on Aaron, we need to put ourselves in those same shoes, in his same shoes. Because over the last 20 years, I think we have seen and also experienced something very similar in the Christian church in general as a whole. We have seen many Christian denominations, we have seen many Christian leaders fall and crumble at the hands of the mob culture, the cancel culture, the politically correct culture. We have seen denominations wilt and, and turn their backs on clear biblical convictions. Convictions and, and clear doctrines that are black and white, such as marriage and sexuality and gender. And over the last couple years, we've seen uh, some churches, some Christian leaders embrace, syncretize these worldviews of intersectionality, of critical race theory, and being woke. Instead of standing firm on the Scripture, instead of standing firm on the Gospel, instead of standing firm on the solid rock of Christ, they have bent a knee to the culture and its views, which are neither God's will or God's way. And for all of us in here who are born again, who name the name of Christ, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that have crossed over from death to life, and have been set apart by the grace of God, and now we're called royal priests, a holy nation. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called you out of dark into darkness. Everyone who names that, everyone in here who carries that banner is going to face what Aaron faced. You're going you're to face the cancel culture in your life. You're going you're to face the threats of the world in your life. And you're going to have to choose whom you are going to serve, as Joshua said. Are you going to stand firm on the gospel and on the truth, or are you going to wilt? You see, the leadership of the Crossing Church is here to help you. It's to help you stand firm on the truth is to hold up your arms when you are faced with that. We have a lot of young families that are going to go through school systems that are having these pagan views taught to our kids at such a young age. Gender, sexuality. We're here to hold up your arms, to hear you to fight the fight, to share truth with grace. Many of us in our workplaces are going to be faced with choices are we going to stand on the convictions of Christ and lead our lives a certain way? Or are we going to, again, bow to our employers and their wishes and their demands and take us down a road to make us do evil things? We are here to hold up your arms and vice versa. You are here to hold up our arms. This is a team effort. 
So we see Aaron capitulates to the mob. He collects the gold. He fashions it. He forms it with this graven tool and this image of a golden calf. The calf, probably a better word there is young bull. So think of a young bull. Um, it's probably made out of wood, and the gold is kind of laid over it. And so quickly, why a golden calf? As we talked about earlier, as we going through Egypt, we've seen there's been, you know, they have hundreds of gods. You know, why is it not a snake? Why is it not a frog? Why is it not a, a dog, right? Why this, this golden bull? Well, there's another really popular god in Egypt's time. His name was Apis, Apis. And Apis was visual imprint was that of this young bull. And Apis symbolized fertility, uh, strength. He was supposed to have been born by a, uh, by a virgin cow rendered by a, uh, this moonbeam or flash of lightning that came down on top of this mountain. So I want you to take that, those, those, those kind of characteristics of Apis and think about Israel. When Israel rolled into Egypt, you know, in Genesis 46, when we went through that, there were 75 people strong. And now hundreds of years later, they're two to three million people. So they were fertile. God multiplied them and blessed them. They were, they were strong. They've just been delivered from the greatest military might of that time of Egypt. And they didn't even have to pick up a, a bow or an arrow. God, by his strength, led them out. They just, bit, again, defeated the Amalekites. So you can see their strength. And then again, they're looking at the mountain. They're seeing these lightning and a flashing and, and fire. And I think, well, that's how Apis was, was conceived and born. And so you put all those three together, and you can see how they came up with Apis, this golden bull. And here's an interesting fact about idolatry. is people tend to express worship in their idolatry, which corresponds to the mental images and views they have in their mind. So their expression of worship corresponds to the way they view that idol. So think about it. If Apis, as a representative of God, was fertile, strong, lightning, thunder, then their worship would be loud, it'd be intense, and again, it would have some sort of sensuality to it. And this is what we find in Exodus 32, verse 6. Look at that. The next day they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, when you see that word play there, don't think I like pick up basketball, you know, March Madness. It's pick up basketball. Or don't think spike ball. One commentator actually says that that word play, it resembles a drunken, immoral orgy with sexual play. And we see that this is the tone and the tenor of this festival. Verse 17 and 18, Joshua describes it. It sounds like a noise of war in the camp with loud singing. Verse 25, Moses says that they broke loose. Paul also comments on this exact, and he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, that he says, again, this is a, a sexual festival. And so this is what we see. What we see is that the people and Aaron perverted the worship of the one true God. That's what their sin, that's what idolatry led them to, to pervert their worship. One said this, it was an event of a national shame. Psalm 106 says this, he says this, quoting this event, they exchanged the glory of God for a metal image of a cow that eats grass. They forgot God. They forgot God. And what we see here is we see that Israel's impatience was because of their lack of faith, which led them to make an idol. And in that, they made a mockery. They perverted God and his commandments. They acted more like children of men 
than children of God. And God recognized this. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, Moses. Notice that, your people, Moses. Not my people, your people, Moses, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And he re, you know, kind of repeats and highlights what they just did. Now, those of us with kids in here, we know this tactic, right? When Rita and I, we have five kids, and when they are doing great, they're like, hey, they're my kids, Aaron's kids. Look how good they're doing. And when they acted bad, guess whose kids they were? They're Rita kids. That's definitely your family tree right there, babe, right? This is what the Lord is saying. They're not acting like children of God. They're not acting like a royal priesthood. They're acting like men. In verse 8, the Lord tells Moses what this looks like. It's a characteristic. He says they are quick to turn away from God. They're quick to turn away from God's directions, commands. In verse 9, they are stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. In other words, they are pig-headed. This is what describes how we, when we walk after our own lusts of the flesh, we're quick to turn away from God and we're stiff-necked people. And this isn't uncommon to humanity. And we can go back all the way down to Genesis 1 and chapter 1 and 2. We see that God blesses Adam and Eve, gives them this great garden. Eat from any tree except for this one. They get enticed. They eat from that one tree. How quickly they turned on the Lord. And then they fell into sin. And then how quickly we see in Genesis chapter 4, we see the first murder. You think of Noah. Noah saves his whole family from the worldwide flood, right? Gives them this new land. Gives them a new covenant. Did Noah come in Genesis chapter 8? And then Genesis chapter 9, what does Noah do? He gets drunk. He gets naked and he passes out. And we go on and on with Abraham, with David in the Old Testament. We also think about Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira in the New Testament. And even as us today. This verse 8 describes us. We are, we are, you and I are, are quick to turn our backs on the Lord. And we are stiff-necked people, aren't we? I mean, think about it. How many times has the Lord maybe delivered you from a certain sin, a certain situation? You're like, I will never do that again, Lord, if you deliver me from that, right? And then a week later, you click on that website again. Or you take that credit card and you go spend money that you don't have. We do the same thing, don't we? And all this is pointing us, all this sin, all this idolatry is, is for a purpose. It's showing us that we need a Savior. It's showing us that we need a, a mediator, an intercessor, and that leads us to our second point. We see the intercession before God in Exodus 32, 11 through 29. First look at the end of verse 10. Because of Israel's sin, verse 10 said, God's righteous anger burned hot against them and was ready to consume them. And he was going to start all over with Moses. Look at that last verse in verse 10. In order that I may make you a great nation, Moses. Now think about that. If you were Moses and you heard that, I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. I'm going to take care of all those sinners down there, those stiff-necked people, and I'm going to start over with you. You know how they've been throwing you under the bus right now? You know how they've done that in the past? I don't know about you, but I'm like, sign me up. I'll take that offer, Lord. And Moses wouldn't have been sinful taking it. I would have done that. But again, Moses, again, shows his selflessness as a leader rather than the selfishness that we saw in Aaron. We see a contrast between the two brothers. And here the younger brother gets it right. The older brother is not always right. 
we see the younger brother, Moses, chooses to be a selfless leader and not a selfish leader. He chooses the needs of the people over any personal promotion or personal protection like Aaron did. He thinks of others more important than himself. Sound familiar? He intercedes for the people. Verse 11 says, but Moses implored the Lord. There's, a, there's, a, there's an intensity to his intercession. He goes to bat for them. He stands in the gap for them. He intercedes for these stiff-necked people. And it gives us two reasons why the Lord should relent and show great mercy. And we just see, we just see how Moses has grown throughout the years in his wisdom that he has gained, in his leadership capabilities. And he gives two great reasons. The first one we see in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? He's like, Moses is telling the Lord, hey, don't give the people of Egypt a reason why to bash your character, to attack your character. Where they could say like, man, well, we just lost our firstborn. But what kind of God takes one to two, or two to three million people out to the desert, saves them, and then just destroys and kills them all? What kind of God is that? Don't give them ammo to attack your character. Number two, verse 13. And remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. And it promises to multiply and bless them as stars in heaven. Remember your faithfulness. He, he appeals to God's character. The first one says, hey, don't, don't let people give a, an opportunity to destroy your character because your character is who you are. So he appeals to his faithfulness. And again, when we talk about remembering, the Lord didn't forget that, oh yeah, that covenant I made with Israel, we know that's not the case. When we see the Lord remembered in the Bible, that means he's about to do something great. He's about to move. And we see this is exactly what's happened in verse 14. After Moses' intercession, we read God's response, and it's good news. And the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken on bringing on his people. He showed them mercy. He showed them grace. So if verses 1 through 10 were kind of the low point of the story, verses 11 and 14 are the high point of the story. We see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God, that He's truly merciful and gracious. And oh, how we've seen this in our lives as well. Again, one of the reasons why He extends mercy and grace is because Moses steps up and steps into the gap. He inserts himself as an intercessor for His people. Do not underestimate your ability to intercede for one another. Throughout the scriptures, we see this over and over again. You and I play incredible roles in one another's lives as intercessors, as mediators, as one who take prayers before the Lord, supplications for the Lord, for a variety of things, for battling sin. We can go together and we can intercess for one another in our fight against sin. When someone's sick or going through a, a surgery and needs intercession for the Lord to be gracious on them to make everything go well, we intercede. Don't underestimate your ability, your intercession intercession matters. And I love to hear when people say, hey Aaron, we're praying for you guys. We're lifting you up. We know this situation, Living Water Fellowship in Greeley. We get to, uh, the privilege to intercede in a kingdom event and to be praying for the Lord to move and to build His kingdom. And that's something that we can be a part of. Now again, so don't underestimate the importance of you as an intercessor for one another, 
for you standing in the gap for one another because we will, all of us, stumble, fall. We are weak and we need others around us again to come and lift up our arms. We do that through intercession, mainly through prayer. And there's another other ways that we can do it. Now, mainly we're looking at Moses, and he's pointing us to a greater media, which we're going to talk about at the very end. But, so let's move on. Now, after Moses intercedes, and after God says, I will relent, you're thinking like, man, good. The, the, the story should say like, you know, and then Moses walked down holding the two tablets written by God, and everything, they lived happily ever after, right? Maybe that's what should happen. But again, we see this roller coaster. And again, I could probably spend a whole sermon on just, can you imagine what those tablets look like? God himself wrote his writing, those tablets, how magnificent they would have been. Incredible. But again, verse 15, we go right back on the roller coaster ride. Moses meets up with Joshua. So Joshua was down a little bit as Moses was up a little higher on the mountain meeting with the Lord. And they hear what's going on, as I already pointed out. Verse 19, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, the golden bull, and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. This is a holy and righteous anger. It's one thing to hear about sin when you're up in the mountain. It's a whole other ball game to come down and witness what is exactly going on. We see that Moses' anger is, is, is kindled just like the Lord's. He is the Lord's representative, so we see how they are on the same page. And it's holy, it's righteous. And it says, He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That symbolizes them breaking the covenant. Verse 20, He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink. I don't know about you, but verse 20 is like, whoa. I wasn't expecting that. There's a lot of things I would expect, but verse 20 was not what I expected. Not that Moses was angry. We get that Moses is angry, but what he did, his actions, he takes the calf, he burns it to powder, scatters it on the water, and makes the people drink. He destroys the calf, and this kind of shows and proves that this idol is useless. Some commentators go to even greater extents to talk about this, that when they drink the ash out of the water of this burnt calf, it would upset their stomach and come out as excrement. That's what this calf is. Now, again, you're reading that, and I have to admit, (laughs) when I was reading this, I thought to myself, was this the first decaf drink ever made? (laughs) Yeah, that's bad, huh? That's bad. That could be a... That's bad, but... Tell me you didn't think about that either. It makes sense, though, right? All right. I had to kind of break it up a little bit here because of the intensity of this issue and what goes on. Next, we see the interaction with Aaron and Moses in verse 21 through 24. Now, there's a lot of things that can be said about this conversation, but let me just sum it like this. Sum it up like this. Sin makes you do and say stupid things, right? Can we all disagree? Sin makes us do and say stupid things. We see in verses 21 through 24, it's funny. Moses said, dude, Aaron, what what are you doing? And Aaron quotes perfectly what the people said to him, right? But then he kind of forgets everything 
that he did in making of the idol. And he says this. He said, they gave me their gold. I threw it in the fire, and it just came out as a calf, right? And you're like, come on, man. You know? I mean, oh. Again, there's the humor in the Bible, right? But again, the point is that sin makes you do and say stupid things. When you and I fall into sin, and we get called out on it, rightfully so, when we get rebuked, we don't want to play the blame game like Aaron does. Blame the people. They're stiff-necked people. Moses, you know how they are. No, we, we take ownership and responsibility of our sin. And we ask for forgiveness, and then we swim in the grace of God. That's, that should have been the response. Aaron's response should have said, yeah, Moses, I failed. I sinned. Please forgive me. And that would have been all he needed to do. And that leads us quickly to the third point. We see the justice, the grace of God in verses 25 through 35. And what we see is two things happening. The justice of God and the mercy of grace of God being distributed depending on the response of the individuals. First, we see the justice of God. The justice of God, the righteousness of God, is death. And it's distributed to those who do not repent of their sin and their idolatry. They choose, as verse 26 says, not to be on the Lord's side. These people that suffered this judgment, they wanted to continue in their stiff-necked ways. And they did not want to repent. So therefore, they got what they deserved, the justice of God. The second thing we see is the grace of God, which is forgiveness, atonement, and life, is distributed to those who repent of their wicked ways, who chose to respond and stand on the Lord's side, to recognize their rebellion and to choose to be on the Lord's side. Now, this is a humbling portion of Scripture. And whenever we see that the Lord deals with sin in very radical ways like he does here. One of, the, one of the best ways that I've learned or heard how to kind of make sense of this and wrap our, our minds around this um, and other events like this is through this illustration. But before I get to that illustration, just quickly, this first point. The Lord doesn't mince words. When he says, when he says the wages of sin is death, he means the wages of sin is death. He means that. There's a holiness of God that we highlight here. That's highlighted in the Bible. And we see that he executes perfectly in this holy justice when people sin. Now, not all the time it's like this, but, but there are some times. And again, that's just, that's just reminding us of the sinfulness of our sin when we do rebel against the holy God. So that's one. But the illustration is this. And many of us in here will, will resonate with this illustration. Doctors know that there are times when radical surgery needs to be done. They know this. When, when we sit and we hear the words, you have a cancerous tumor and we need to remove it. Doctors know that there's a time where we, they, they need to do radical surgery. Now, we could say, it's like, hey, why would you want to cut into me? I mean, that, that's going to hurt, Right? That's actually kind of mean. You want to cut into my body? It's not very nice. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to hurt me? 
And the doctor would say, because if I leave it in you, it will kill you. The reason why I want to cut into you and take that tumor out is because I want to save your life. And we get that. And we take that illustration, we put it here, we see that the possible reason for the Lord cutting out this tumor of 3,000 stiff-necked, wicked people is because if he would have allowed them to persist with the nation of Israel, they might not have ever gotten to the promised land. The covenant would have been broken over and over and over and over and over again, and he would have again just turned his back. So to save his covenant, to save Israel, he had to cut out the cancerous tumor to save the many. And really, if you stop and think about it, again, this is two to three million people, and only 3,000 did not repent. The, the greater astonishment we should be thinking about is like, wow, how gracious is the Lord because all two to three million people deserve to die on that day. Not just 3,000. But because of His grace, because of His mercy, He saved millions and upon millions of people. That's what we sh- should be astounded by is God's grace and God's mercy. <clears throat> so to me, that's always helped me in these difficult passages that that reminds us that God is holy. He is just, and He will judge sin, but also He's gracious and merciful. Quickly, two more quick points of application this morning. One, remember this, this event here is to remind us. It's to remind us of what not to do. Israel is an example for what not to do. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Again, it reminds us of the sinfulness of sin, that we are in a constant battle to fight sin, you and I. We're in a constant battle to fight idolatry. Calvin says our hearts are perpetual idol makers. We, we might not be able, we not might be as overt as building a, a golden bull to bow down and worship. The culture of the mob comes in and tempts us in more subtle ways, so we need to be on guard on our hearts. We need to be on guard on what, we, what our eyes intake, what our ears listen to, who we hang around with. We need to be on guard with that. And second, and most importantly, and this is what we pointed out, I wanted to point out uh, with Moses, Moses' intercession, his mediation points us again to Jesus, the greatest mediator. That's the main purpose of, of 32 outside of what Paul said. It's a, it, and Moses points us to Jesus, the greater mediator, because all of us in here, in above our sin, idolatry, all of us in our stiff neckedness, we need the Savior. We needed someone to come in and step in the gap for us and appease the righteous justice of God once and for all. And that's why Jesus came. And he did it not by praying only. Or having a conversation with God the Father, he did it by dying on the cross for you and for me. He did it by giving up his life. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So our response to Exodus 32, knowing that Moses in this whole situation points us to Jesus and his mediation for you and for me is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy on my life. 
And with that, we, we, we are a, a child of the King. And He gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us His Word to now walk. He gives us one another to help sharpen one another, to, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, to become more and more like Jesus. And we have the message of reconciliation, and we are to take that to the world, to those that are circles of influence, our friends and our families. And what better time to hear about Exodus 32 with Easter coming up? should be motivation for us to take the message of the gospel, to me- take the message of Jesus as the only mediator between you and God and present that to our friends and family. Let me leave us with this last quote by John Stott. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine sacrifice. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, severity and grace, and justice, and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your justice and mercy found only in Jesus as our mediator. And so, Lord, let us be a people to be reminded by Israel's example of what not to do. The battle that we have, all of us, in our own hearts to fight sin and idolatry, to fight our impatience, to fight our lack of faith, Lord. Lord, to to fight our so quickly to turn our backs on you and to run after other idols. Let this be a reminder to us that that we, we serve and love the one true God who extends grace and mercy and forgiveness and who gives us the ability to enjoy this life and enjoy it abundantly. As we are connected to the to the vine, Lord, that that our lives will produce much fruit. And that's I know that's our desire. So Lord, thank you for your scriptures that remind us of this great truth of your great gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.